Uh, and the reason why I'm not real crazy about it is because I, I read the Bible and it just doesn't look like anything that the Bible calls normal. But when you get dipped in the modern world's view of normal, you're going to start looking like it, smelling like it, acting like it, and thinking like it if you're not careful. So what I love about the book of Acts as we've been studying through this book is uh, it, it's, it's a replay, if you will, of the first century church. We get to sit down and watch a bit of a video replay of, of what did the church look like as it was taking off and what's normal. When we look to the scriptures, what's normal for how we view life, how we view priorities, how we do relationships, how we figure out the roles of men and women, all the things that are touching our society today. Well, we can discover some things here in the book of Acts. Before I read this passage, uh, I titled today's message, Disciple Making Lessons from the Corinthians. And we're going we're gonna to meet the Corinthians today as we travel with Paul to another location of, of mission work. But I want to install that word disciple making. I want to remind us of it and I want to make us more at home with it. I don't know if you would say disciple making characterizes a central feature of your life. You came in, maybe there's some other terminologies that are very familiar to you. Maybe you have a career, so you've got a title, you've got some experience in an area. You went to college, you got a degree in something, that's, that's kind of who you are. Uh, or you're hoping to go to college because that's an important thing in your life. You're a, you're a homemaker, you're a homeowner, right? If you're like me, you spent a good bit of your day yesterday uh, just doing repairs and doing work around the home. That's a, a big thing in your life. You have a career that's, that is a major portion of who you are. Uh, all these things say something about our lives, but, but do you associate, do you associate with your life the term disciple maker? That you are a disciple, and there's no such thing, by the way, as a disciple who's not a disciple maker. It's like somehow we've, we've divorced these terminologies. We've got disciples of Jesus Christ who never make disciples. Well, that's sort of like an oxymoron. In Scripture, disciples, those who followed Christ, followed him into the Great Commission. So there were no such thing as non-disciple-making disciples. So there's not a section of the church where you can say, okay, all the non-disciple-making disciples come sit over here. There's no such thing. So as you look in your life, and we learn a little bit about disciple-making today, we try to reemphasize that in our lives. Can you look to yourself to see, am I seeing my own role as a disciple maker where other people are learning of Christ? They're being helped to come to maturity. They're being served and affected in the Great Commission. They're being introduced to the gospel and they're being strengthened along their way and walking to the glory of God with their lives. That's what a disciple maker does. But I want to introduce another term to us because I think this passage today is going to help us with something I'm going to call determinism, maybe, maybe more accurately, institutional determinism. So I want to talk about discipleship, and I want to talk about determinism. And this is what I mean by determinism. Determinism has to do with the input that you and I have into something. And I call it institutions because there's, there's certain institutions that travel with us through life, right? There's the family, and you're going to make an investment in your family. There's your marriage. You're, you're going to make an investment in your marriage. That's going to travel with you through life. Uh, the church. You make an investment into the church. And it's going to travel with us through life. But there's a real dangerous thing that we do here. 
in that we, we start to believe, and it's tempting to believe this, that our input, our contribution into these institutions becomes deterministic in the outcomes. So like we have the power, if, if, if we just do the right thing, then we get the right fruit, right? And so what ends up happening is when that starts to get heard by us over and over and over again, at some point, that's not a bad message for us when we're in our teen years and our 20 years because we kind of haven't built too much yet. But when you get later in life, this presentation will haunt you, this deterministic view, because later on in life, you're eating the fruit of earlier on in life. You're eating the fruit of your marriage, eating the fruit of your parenting, eating the fruit of being a church. You're, you're later on now. So what do you do when you determine or you find out you've got faulty fruit? The fruit in your life just doesn't look right. It doesn't seem to be functioning right. Well, if along the way you've installed this deterministic thinking, faulty fruit means what? Faulty input. You're, you're experiencing what you're experiencing because what you did to contribute to this produced the outcome. So, you know, if you, if you put in 50 cents, there should be 50 cents worth of fruit. And if I only find 32 cents worth of fruit, well, then I just conclude that I must have just put in 32 cents worth of effort. Because I've got this deterministic thinking going on in my mind. That if I do the right thing often enough, with, an, with enough submission to God, etc., then I will get the right outcome. But what happens when you don't get the right outcome? Well, if you've been thinking deterministically, all you can conclude is you didn't do the right input. Now, on the one hand, let me just say this to get, us, get this suspicious thought off of all of our heads. Nobody here in the room has made a sufficient contribution to anything in your life. There's not a person here who can say, I have made the 100% contribution to my marriage all the time that I've always needed to make. I've, I've done that to my parenting, to, to the church, to whatever it is that God's called you to. Listen, there's nobody in the room here. So nobody's dealing with a score of 100%. So we all just need to find out, okay, well, how much are we lacking? Well, we're all lacking in a variety of ways. And we're all going to be living in the fruit of whatever it was that we were lacking so there's a responsibility element here, but there's a real lesson to be learned as well as we get to know this church in Corinth. Let's read together Acts chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. It says, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila and a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. For they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath. And tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia... Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. 
And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid. Go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Lord, thank you for supernaturally preserved and revealed truth that is here in your word. Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear and lives that need this passage. Lord, what a shame it is. I come too much to your word, unconvinced that I need what this passage says. I'm just reading. So Lord, give us eyes that can see, ears that can hear, and lives that need this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. I mean, let me give you a little bit of some geography here. Let me see if I can do this right. All right, so here we are. After this, Paul, and I remember we did not too long ago, we were in Athens. Let's see if I can find where we are here. This is Athens. This is where we were just the last time we were in Acts. This is a decent timeline, and this is helpful for me. I'm a picture thinker, so for those of you who are, you need something to hang information on, this will hopefully help you. Uh, these are decent dates for the spread of Christianity in the first century. So, you know, we start over here in Jerusalem. Um, not sure why Damascus is mentioned by this guy, but Antioch obviously is a major player. 41 is a decent date. Remember, we, Paul gets into all kinds of difficulty and trouble on his first journeys in Iconium and Derb and Lystra. Remember, he's being thrown out, beat up. He's left for dead. Okay, that's the region here of Galatia. That's where all this is happening. 51 is a little late, so that's probably my most unfavorite date on here. But at some point, Paul takes another journey. Remember, he has a meeting here in Antioch. Uh, He and Barnabas go their own way. And Paul goes off to continue the mission of the gospel. He's going to head back to support these churches. He's going to visit them again. And then he's going to go this way and end up going over here into Macedonia. This is Macedonia. This is Achaia down here when you hear those words in Scripture. Oops. I just blew up the universe. Somebody help me with that. You just don't give this kind of power to anybody. You guys remember that. Thank you. Um, all right, my back on here. All right, so th- this is why this is helpful, because sometimes we just don't have any time frame of reference of when did all this stuff happen? Paul's writing letters to this one. He's visiting that one. All right, so this is a pretty decent time frame. He lands in, in Philippi. Berea is here. Thessalonica sails down the coast to Athens. All this happens in about 51, 52 AD. Pretty good guesstimate there. And and then he's going to spend about a year and a half in Corinth. Now, interesting, if you look at Paul's letters, right, he writes a letter to the Thessalonians. He was just with them in Thessalonica. Maybe three or four months go by and he turns around and writes a letter to the Thessalonians. So when you're reading the the letter to the Thessalonians, he was just there with these guys and writes back to them. And that's not true almost anywhere else. Any of the other letters that you're reading, there's some delay here. He's going to write to the Corinthians, but he's not going to do that for two or three years after he leaves. And so the church is going to grow up a little bit and get established, and it's going to develop some issues, and then Paul's going to write back to it two or three years after he's departed. And then he's going to settle at some point. He's going to be here in Ephesus for a few years as well. 
So what's interesting for us about the Corinthians is we, we get more of a kind of a play-by-play of a local church in Corinth than we do anywhere else. Uh, there's, there's no letter back to Derb or Lystra or Iconium or Berea. I mean, they're mentioned in Scripture, but Paul doesn't engage them, and we don't have any letters that reveal something about that church. But here we get a very unique, and I want to take advantage of this very unique moment here. Paul is setting foot in Corinth. He's showing up to preach the gospel. He's an apostle. He is anointed by God to establish churches in Corinth. And and he is the best. I think we could say that. He's the best at it. And he's going to show up in Corinth. And I'm going to assume, and I think rightly assume, that he is going to lay some firm foundations. I don't know anybody else in the New Testament that I could say has a better resume for church planting than the Apostle Paul. He, I mean, he's the guy who's willing to come to locations where he knows I'm going to get beat half to death, but set the appointment for me, I'm going. He's got a passion to preach the gospel. When we open up the, the New Testament and he explains the significance of who Jesus Christ is and what he did, nobody writes at a greater level. Nobody had more insights. This mystery of Christ, nobody does a better job of revealing who he is than the Apostle Paul. This, this guy is a stud. He's going to lay some firm foundations. And then we're going to follow the life of this church and learn something about disciple-making. And we're also going to learn something about faulty fruit. Because if you've read the Bible very much at all, you know the church in Corinth is a poster child for problematic churches. But sometimes we forget how it got started. Who started it? And the significance of his contribution into the life of this church that becomes so problematic Later on when we read about it. Right, so Paul arrives in verse 2 there. He arrives and he connects with uh, Aquila and Priscilla. Interesting, if you're, if you're wanting to check a little his, historical information about the New Testament. Uh, here the New Testament is saying that these guys were kicked out of Rome. Claudius had determined that, that he didn't want these Jews in Rome. Perhaps he didn't want Jewish Christians in Rome. Now, for them, he'd just, he'd just been Jews making a lot of noise because Suetonius, who's a first century historian, makes this statement about what Claudius did. He kicked them out of Rome because of their constant disturbances in the instigation of Christus. And many believe Christus is a reference to Christ. So if that's interesting, because that's 49 AD, and on these dates of Rome, we don't have, you know, 60 AD, but that would mean and this would, this would be our suspicion, that the gospel is going all over the globe even before the apostles arrive in these locations to shore up the churches. Perhaps even as early as the late 40s, there's believers who are sharing the gospel in Rome, so much so that they're needing to be kicked out of the city. Claudius is sick of dealing with the controversy that's come up. So Priscilla and Aquila have traveled. They're over in Corinth now, and they're hanging out with Paul. But interesting, though, Paul's arrival... In Corinth, remember he was in Athens. We studied that a few weeks ago. Uh, he had an interesting reception there in Athens. He's amongst the thinkers and the, and the philosophers, and this is a think tank city. They're arguing with Paul. He doesn't get beat up like he did in some of the other cities, but he gets challenged. And his, his word gets resisted, and he shows up in Corinth. What's, what's Paul's demeanor like? He's going to another city preach the gospel again. I mean, I, my, my view of Paul is, 
you know, this, this dude rides an invisible white horse. He's just full of leather and toughness. And he just goes from place to place. Nothing slows this guy up. Probably overlooking. Paul was, was human. Paul had weaknesses. Paul had challenges. And listen, I want to be realistic with us today because I think some of us, we inflate things into unrealism and then we try and live in the shadow of that. So try and live in, this, in Paul's shadow. Any, any pastors or your leader in the church, try and live in Paul's shadow. You know, he's a guy who never has a dent in his armor. He just never slows up. The guy's incredible all the time. But maybe human as well, right? Derek Thomas in his commentary said, Paul traveled to Corinth in a mood of great dejection, writes one New Testament scholar. He had not known any violence in Athens as he had in Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. But the polite amusement that had greeted his witness there was perhaps more difficult to take than violence. More likely, it is the reputation of the city that frightened him. Remember, at some point here, the Lord is having to appear to Paul in a vision and tell him, Paul, do not be afraid. Why, why is that line in Scripture? Why is the Lord taking the time with Paul to tell him, don't be afraid? Right? Don't, don't do rocket science here. This is very simple. Why would the Lord tell someone, don't be afraid? Because they were right. That's how you read the Bible. It's just real simple. <laughs> I'm pretty sure Paul didn't answer back, say, oh, what? I'm, I'm not afraid. I think the Lord knows what he's talking about. More likely, it is the reputation of the city that frightened him. At least in Athens, they were interested in debating ideas, and Paul could speak of Jesus and the resurrection and get a hearing, but not in Corinth. The youth in particular were more interested in sex and sport than in talking about religion. To be labeled a Corinthian uh, was to have a label hung on you that had to do with sexual immorality. They were for hundreds of years known for their immorality. That's what they were famous for. Uh, that and, and, and Olympic Games. They weren't too far from Olympus. They had their own version of the Olympics that took place every other year. So this was a, a commercial place. It, it was a, a, a city with a lot of port input and output, people traveling through it. But you came there to party. Right, I think we can relate to that, huh? New Orleans has got a little bit of a Corinthian reputation to it. You come to New Orleans to party. And so there's not a, a ripe heart available, interested, and eager for the gospel. And, and Paul is showing up there after having been in, in probably lesser places with lesser reputations. And he's having to be told by the Lord, do not be afraid. And he even tells the Corinthians when he writes back to them a few years later, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 1, he says, And I, when I came to you, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Right? That's, that's, that's not the image of the Apostle Paul that I run around with mostly. I have a guy who's never shaken. He's, he never questions anything. He's just got his A game going all the time. But yet the Lord has to tell him, Paul, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid because I am with you. Can I take this out of the glorious apostle land and, and put it in your own backyard, in your own situation, in your own life calling? Paul clearly knew that he was called to be an apostle. So for the Lord to be with him 
It was for the Lord to be with him as an apostle. All right, and you're probably not called to be an apostle. I'm going to assume that for most folks here. You're called to be something, though. God has called you to something. God's called you to be a disciple maker. We've already said that. Whether you're a disciple maker who works in an office building downtown, whether you're a mother raising children, whether you serve in the, whatever it is that you do, you're called to be a disciple maker. You're called to take up the things that God has put in your life, those callings, those roles that he's called you to play. The job that you have is is a calling from God. Do you ever get in this kind of position in that calling? Do you ever describe the, the station where you're at as weak and fearful? Or you're walking out your call. You know, some of you guys are, some of you guys are business owners. And there's that weight and that responsibility of the economy and, and hiring and firing people and managing how things are going, how they're not going. And, you know, you're watching your, your bank book go down and, and difficulties in the business world arise. And, and it's easy to have a sense of God's called you into this, but you feel fearful and trembling. You go to your wife and your confession is, babe, I don't know how we're going to make payroll. I don't, I don't know how we're going to survive this. It's, it's not unusual for people called by God to find themselves in a place where that's what they feel, weakness and fear. And having to have the Lord step in and bring a word of reassurance. Do not be afraid. I am with you. Now, now, and then one more step. Now, re-engage your calling. Don't, don't stay in fear. Don't stay in the land of trembling. Don't just camp out there staring at circumstances and saying, you know, it's just been bad. It's going bad. It's continuing to go bad. I'm just afraid. I'm afraid. And all you do is talk about fear and trembling. God steps in, speaks to him, speaks to us, and he says, I am with you. Get up and re-engage. And some of us need to hear that last thing said to us because we've bumped into life in a confusing, heavy, discouraging way and we've just made that our new address. That's where we live. And so when anybody bumps into us, what they hear us say is what Paul said. You know, when I came to you, I was weak, I was fearful, I was trembling. A month later, you bump into somebody else. I'm weak, I'm fearful, I'm trembling. A year later, hey, how's it going? I'm weak and fearful and trembling. And it just kind of becomes who you are. Okay, we got to hear God say something to us. And then we have to re-engage. Whatever it is that God's called you to, at some point, you just got to re-engage, believing that God really is with you. Now, let me, let me pick up on some lessons here. Right? This is a local church that's about to give us a behind-the-scenes peek through Paul's letters back to them a few years later. So what was life like? And I want to highlight this under normal disciple-making. The Corinthians were doing normal disciple-making, right? We've got this great commission is given. The Lord, before he ascends, gathers his apostles and disciples, and he says, uh, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I've got control of everything, guys. Go, therefore, into all the world and make disciples, teaching them, right? Baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. All right, there's the command. What does that look like? When you actually put that on and you walk around in it, what does it look like? What are people doing when they're making disciples? 
What's the activity, the gathering of people look like? Well, Corinthians kind of helps us to have a a behind-the-scenes look at what's going on in Corinth. So I want to walk us through just some insights from this passage and from the Corinthian church to to learn a little bit about disciple-making. Lesson number one. The message of the gospel is to be reasoned with hearers with the aim of persuading them. Look at Acts 18, verse 4. This is what Paul's doing. Everywhere Paul goes, making disciples always involves this. Verse 4. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Lesson number one in being a disciple maker means you are in the role of reasoning with others. We get the word dialogue from this word in the Greek. You are in the role of dialoguing with others, of having conversations with others about the gospel. Being a disciple maker means you talk about the gospel. You can explain the gospel, and that word actually can mean argue. You can argue the gospel. You don't hear someone raise one concern, one question, first time they say, well, I don't know if the Bible's all true, and and you're just on your heels immediately. Paul's not on his heels. He's ready to talk. He's ready to have a debate. He's ready to have a discussion. Everybody needs to have done sufficient homework on the gospel to where that's the way in which you and I engage people. Disciple-making means being ready to argue the case of the gospel, why it is true, why the Christ is Jesus. That's what he was doing. They had to believe that a category for the Christ, the Messiah. Paul's argument was that category that you have, it's filled by this one person right here. It's Jesus. Let me make my case to you. If you were a Jew, he opened the Old Testament to you and brought you through it. If, if you were a Gentile, he treated you a little different. In Athens, we saw a little bit different presentation. But everywhere he went, whether you were a Jew or a Greek, his role, his responsibility was to persuade others. Now, I know this is the part about Christianity that, that some of us don't like. This is definitely the part about Christianity that the world doesn't like. Keep your religion to yourself. You believe what you believe, I believe what I believe. Why are people saying that? Leave me alone. That's what they're saying. Don't try and convince me about what you believe. Don't try and persuade me. I believe what I believe. But yet, a disciple maker recognizes you are called to go and upset what other people believe. That's what makes for fun conversations, doesn't it? Now, be wise and be careful how you do that. But it's, it's unavoidable. This is, this is what Christianity never does. And because Christianity has that language in it, it informs us about its criticalness and its necessity and its non-optionalness. Paul, if these people already believe something. They're Jews. They already believe in God. They already believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They already believe he created everything. They believe all that, Paul. Why do you need to persuade them? Just leave them alone. They believe so much that's right on. He was there to persuade them. They needed to believe something else that they did not believe. And you must believe it. What about these Gentiles? These Romans and Greeks, pantheists, 
People who believed in all kinds of gods and powers that were out there. Some who believed in in no form of God. There's atheists then as well. What was Paul's approach to them? It was to persuade them. This is is a challenge to us, but it's, it's an awkward reality. The gospel sits in us as a message that we are called to persuade others to abandon what they believe and believe this. Right? Just back up a little bit in, in this chapter, uh, chapter 17. That God overlooked the ignorance, but he commands all people everywhere to repent. To change what you believe. To stop living your life based on that idea and to accept what I have said and what I've revealed in my son, Jesus Christ. Listen, if, if, you're, if you've kind of got... Christianity and the balance is here. And you're thinking, oh, I don't really know what I think about Christianity. I'm not sure where I am in that. I, you know, I'm, I think it's so fine. You know, I've got relatives who believe some of those things, and that's cool. Listen, Christianity sits amongst all other options and picks a fight with them all. It calls anyone who believes another option to abandon that, to repent and turn to Jesus Christ as God's only solution for man's need. That's what the gospel calls us to do. So making disciples starts with a a message that we are called to persuade others to believe. Second lesson, the ministry of disciple making is more than an introduction to conversion. Right? Some of us as we traffic in Christianity, like the, the only thing we learned to do, and, I, and this, is, this is what I learned when I was you know, younger. I, I learned the, through Campus Crusade, it was a campus ministry, the four spiritual laws. Some of you guys have heard of that. Um, it's, it's a little booklet. You know, it's about this big. It's probably got like a dozen pages in it. Very simple presentation of the gospel and, uh, and of the need for people to respond to the gospel. Right? Um, right if I were, to, I were to hold this up, and then we're going to hold that up. How many of you guys recognize there's a little bit more to know than that? Paul spent time here teaching, right? Verse 11 says, he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. He's going to stay three years in Ephesus. He stayed multiple years in Antioch. There were locations where Encountering Paul didn't mean that the only thing Paul shared with you and the only insight that he had came out of a four spiritual laws booklet where he had a a little codified piece of information about what the gospel is and and what you must do and how to receive it. And and that was him. That was Paul. You met Paul. Paul was a four spiritual laws guy. Everything he had to say could be found in a little bitty booklet. Um, I I don't find that. I open up 1 Corinthians. I, I find Paul first couple of chapters, he's got a lot to say about the importance of unity. He stayed amongst the people of God and he taught them the importance of their unity with one another. That was a matter for him of great importance. It was a matter of what Jesus taught. Go into all the world, preach the gospel, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. Jesus in John chapter 17 prayed for unity, a powerful God presence demonstrating unity amongst his people. Paul's under a mandate, disciple makers are under a mandate to teach on unity. 
And I, I'm, part of me wants to say, everybody in here ought to be able to teach something on unity. You know why the church can't stand itself and it can't get along with itself? Because I don't think anybody feels the burden to understand unity. Right? We live in a country where I feel the burden to understand me. I know what I think and I know how I feel and I know how I want you to feel about how I feel. I'm good on that. But I don't know the priority. I don't really know. I don't have a heartbeat for John 17. Oh, Father, they may be one supernaturally, miraculously, mind-blowingly, even as we are one, that they might be one. You thinking about that? You trying to convince anybody else of that? Do you understand that's disciple-making? Paul's making disciples in Corinth. Well, I just thought disciple means when you share the gospel with people and they make a decision about getting saved. No, it's part of disciple making. It's a very important part of disciple making. It's the part that should be emphasized in disciple making. But you know when the church becomes disunified, gets at war with itself, people put their own interests above others, uh, there's not a lot of gospel sharing going on. This is not one or the other. It's not love one another or share the gospel. You know, do one or the other. One causes the other, right? People who have loved me, have cared for my soul, have helped me through conflicts, difficult times, times I wanted to abandon things. They have secured strength in me so that I could share the gospel with others. See, unity matters. And Paul's all over a bunch of topics, right? I think I may have put these in your outline. I don't know. First Corinthians, he spoke about true wisdom and the word of the cross. All these other ideas that are out there, Paul says, I've just come to present one to you. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul talked about sexual immorality and church discipline. Right? His message wasn't just a message of, listen, your life is broken. You need to decide for Christ and trust him. After you do decide for Christ, now Paul can... Paul talked about how you live. This sexual immorality among you needs to stop. As a matter of fact, if if you refuse for it to stop, then you need to be put out of the church. Okay, Paul's making disciples right here. This is what disciple making looks and sounds like. He taught on marriage and divorce. taught on conflicts and lawsuits. taught on cultural considerations about what you could eat and what might cause somebody else to stumble because their cultural background is different than yours. And they're affected by the ways of the world in a way that maybe you're not. Are you taking that into consideration? That's disciple making. Talk about spiritual gifts. Talk about small group meetings. If you read 1 Corinthians chapter 14, I can't help but think that's a small group meeting. He clarified the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, he was ready to debate aspects of the gospel that need to be clarified and not forfeited. Right, so the ministry of disciple making is more than an introduction to conversion. Another thing we learn about Corinth here, and this is helpfully realistic. If you were to read the Corinthian times, you would find out that apostolic churches are not idyllic churches. No matter where, no matter what setting, if you gather people together, what you gathered with them was sin, Sin came into the room today when you came in. And when I came in. Okay. (laughs) 
weakness came in. Lots of our, listen, you know, and please know the difference because lots of our offenses are not just about sin. They're about weakness. It's about me encountering you not being enough toward what I'd like you to be. A lot of times that's weakness. Immaturity. Varying levels of maturity. Right? There are people in this room right now that are going to go sin this, they're gonna, you're going to go sin this week like a spoiled, brat, immature Christian. That's what you're going to look like. And then in the same room here, there's some Christians who are much older that put that kind of foolish stuff away 20 years ago in their life. And you're in the same church together. Good luck. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But it, does, it feels like that's a problem, doesn't it? That's like, that's, that's wrong. That's going to be a problem. We're going to have issues here. Listen, welcome to the apostolic church, right? Uh, if we were to read the headlines, Apollos takes early lead over Paul. Paul appeals for peace. You remember this in, in Corinthians? If you read Corinthians, this is the headlines from Corinthians. Right? Brothers, I hear there's quarreling and fights among you. Right? It's Paul appealing. I appeal to you, brethren, for peace. Well, because some of them liked Apollos better than they liked Paul. Paulus is more anointed. Paulus makes more sense. I just like the way Paulus speaks. Paulus is more faithful. He's been here, you know, blah, blah, blah. Big time apostle labeled unimpressive. Right? Read the Corinthians. There were some people in Corinth who felt like, yeah, you know, Paul, the big shot. Listen, he writes some intimidating letters, but when the little guy shows up, he is unimpressive. Right? That's, that's, all right, that's a headline for these guys. New Sunday school class, take them to court and they won't be so big. Right? If you've read Corinthians, you know what I'm talking about, right? So here you are, believers exposed to the wisdom of God, and you get into a conflict with each other, and you go run to heathens who, who burn their food over some idol. They can't even figure out who the real God is. They, they shove God to the edge of their life. They have misplaced priorities, but you're going to go ask them to weigh in on your differences and your conflicts, Really? And that's happening in Corinth, right? First come, first served. Right? If you were going to a fellowship meeting, that's how it happened. People figured out, if I get there early, I can eat and drink before everybody else gets there. So what kind of love is this? Well, I get there early so I can just have a good meal. And that's literally what they were doing. They're come together to celebrate the Lord and the Lord's Supper and fellowship and who we are together as believers and these selfish individuals would get there early and eat all the food and drink all the wine. <laughs> all right, you keep reading. Corinthian times. Sexual immorality sinks to new low in Corinth. You know, when, when Paul has to scratch his head to the Corinthians and say, wow. First Corinthians 5. Wow. You guys have sunk to a new low. You guys are sinning sexually in a way that even the Corinthians don't do. And you're in the worst, most sinful city in sexual immorality. And you guys are worse than the people outside the church. How many of you guys have ever said that about the church? Not just in that category, but in any category. There's people outside the church that are nicer. Come on, you've said it. Charismatic abuse and arrogance abound. Right? These guys were charismatic. And we're glad for that. We'll see it in a moment. But they were arrogantly charismatic. Right? For them, you know, they could just go on and on. I had a gift of tongues. He'd just go on and on and on and on and on and on and on. And then the guys with the gift of prophecy, you know, they, they'd all, they're all speaking over each other and talking all at once. And one guy just goes on and on and on. Next thing you know, it's like, hey, can we do anything besides prophesy today? The prophets are speaking. And Paul has to write to them. 
and tell them, listen, listen, can you guys take turns here? Maybe one at a time, first of all, just one prophet speaks, the rest of y'all listen and judge. And, and then just two or three, you've got other stuff we're trying to do in the meeting besides just letting the prophet, I'm a prophet. I'm a prophet, brother. You need to let me speak. I'm a prophet. What arrogant, right? I have the gift of tongues and just go on and on and on. Well, well, well pray in private in your tongues. Right? That's, why, that's why you see this stuff getting corrected because it's a church with issues. Who really needs the resurrection? By the time you get to the end of, of 1 Corinthians 15, you got a group of Christians in the church who don't believe in the resurrection and trying to convince other people they shouldn't either. Really? The resurrection you want to do without? That kind of puts a hole in the whole boat, doesn't it? And Paul's got to write to them and explain that to them. So not only divisive and filled with error, but they're, but they're just knuckleheads as well. So welcome to... Welcome to the Corinthian church. You're just passing through town and you decided, oh, I heard there's a church in Corinth. I stopped in and this is the kind of stuff I'm hearing about. Can I pull the, the church off of some lofty shelf somewhere? Put it back down into reality? Because I would, I would have done this. So if I'm about to step on your toes, I'm stepping on mine before I get to yours, okay? I, I would have been, and probably still am in some ways, a, what I think I put it in your outline, I called a zealot purists. Uh, I am a zealot purist, and, and I have been a zealot purist. Here's what zealot purist, this is what I mean by that. At some point in my Christian life, I saw in Scripture, and it's there, and you should see it as well, that holiness matters. If that doesn't matter to you, I don't know how it can't. Holiness matters. A life that is being transformed by God, a life that is being touched by the power of God, a mind that is being renewed by the truth of God, undergoes change and transformation and growth. Seeing that in Scripture, seeing that that is a means through which God proclaims his life through us. God is alive. Look at the people of God. Now, what happens if you see that at the expense of seeing other things in Scripture? What happens if you see that without reading Acts chapter 18 and 1 Corinthians carefully? We develop a little bit of an attitude. That attitude sounds like, you know, if God were really at work in your life, well, some of this wouldn't be happening for sure. If God were really at work in this church in Corinth, these kind of things wouldn't be happening. Because I believe in sanctification. I believe in holiness. I believe people should change. I believe they should overcome. They should mature. They should go on. That's what the church should be like. Next step for the purist is to believe that the noble thing to do in this moment is to back away from such people. Because they don't don't love God, not the way I love God. They don't take God's word seriously. Not, Not the way I take God's word seriously. But here's the fly in the ointment. Read 1 Corinthians, read 2 Corinthians. Find me anywhere. Find me anywhere where the Apostle Paul tells people, stop attending this church. Stop being around these kinds of people. It's not good for you. It's not good for your children. It's not good. Do, Do church at home. I'm picking on that idea on purpose. Because there are some people who have done exactly that. 
The church has failed to measure up to what I think it ought to be because I've got these four distinctives that every church ought to feature. And they don't do these four things. Therefore, the church is subpar. It's not up to speed. So the best thing I could do is just keep my family at home and we'll, we'll just do, and maybe a couple others that are like us that have similar convictions. We'll just stay at home. Just do this thing at home. Can I just tell you, you're only going to be able to do that for a little while. Because at some point, somebody's going to get different in the category that you don't have tolerance for their difference. And you're going to have to move on, make it smaller. This is a big, this is a big problem when churches grow. Because, you know, I don't know if you know this. You should, you should try and know this. this. This room is filled with some messy, messy people. You know, you know, I don't mean messy like, yeah, I know, I know women in here wear red fingernail polish. Red. What, are you trying to draw attention to yourself? No, I mean like serious heroin addict problems, drug addiction problems, sexual immorality problems are in the pew here this morning with us. And they were in the pew in Corinth as well. And nowhere does the Apostle Paul say, stop, shut it down, stay away, give up, go home, go find somewhere else. He gives a lot of counsel to them, but that's not the counsel that he gives to them. I I find that intriguing. I find it interesting and helpful as well. Before I run out of time here. what, What is a... That's actually a picture of Corinth, by the way, looking toward the harbor town. What is a disciple-making church? Right? Disciple-making get, can, can, in some people's minds, get a very narrow profile. Right? The word disciple, manthano in the Greek, it means to be a learner. <clears throat> so here, make sure you hear me say this. A great deal of emphasis should be put on teaching. If you're a disciple-making church, a great deal of emphasis should be put on teaching. Well, what does your church do to, to do disciple-making? Well, this is what this has evolved into. It's, it's you know, we, we buy a book. It's called Disciple-Making 101, How to Make Disciples, Eight Steps to Disciples. And, and we, we get a class, we get a program, we get people who are going through this together. It's teaching them the basics of the faith, teaching them the basic understanding of Scripture, uh, and then mobilizing them to go reach out into the world. Right? We call these things disciple programs. And so what does your church do? To make disciples. All right, well, if I, if I look at the Corinthian church, I believe Paul laid foundations for a church to make disciples. So much of what they're doing here is making disciples. Much of their life together is, is the disciple-making process. And it involves several things. I'll just highlight a few here. Right? Disciple-making involves fellowship and gathering together and the use of spiritual gifts to build up other believers. Building up one another is an aspect of disciple-making. A major role you and I are called to play in each other's lives is to strengthen the faith that's in one another. Everyone's called to that. It's not as though it only counts when you pull out your four spiritual laws and share it with a lost person. Now you're making disciples. No, it counts when you fellowship and care and strengthen the wounded and help those who are, become distressed in their walk. And tribulation has sat upon them the way the scriptures counsel. You ever see how much the Bible talks to those in tribulation? It says a lot to them. 
we learn something from that, right? We learn that we're to be talking to those in tribulation. We're to be helping their faith. Peter, Satan has demanded permission to sift you as wheat, but I've prayed that your faith would not fail. You realize keeping faith from failing is a community project. So, you know, have your ears open. Do you hear people whose faith is failing? Do you run toward them? So you have a task. That's disciple-making in the church. Disciple-making is a charismatic environment. <clears throat> where we get a great deal of teaching. We get the most teaching from this church in Corinth about charismatic gifts, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. All right. Now, we, we've just traveled, right? We're, we're, we're hitting this location right here. We've traveled to Corinth. You guys remember the little map? All right, now think with me. When I read Galatians, I don't read Paul talking a lot about gifts. Letter to the Thessalonians, not a lot about gifts. He's going to write to the Philippians a few years from now, not a lot about gifts. Hmm. Now, does anybody do this? Does anybody think, hmm. Well, I guess the Corinthians were unique. They were the church with gifts. Does anybody conclude that? Do you read your Bible that way? You think Paul got a revelation? Let's do something unique in court. Let's, let's do this thing called spiritual gifts. I haven't tried this anywhere else. I'm going to introduce the Holy Spirit to Korah. I've been holding out on all these other churches. I've been all over Galatia. I've traveled all over the world. But finally, I'm going to break out this gift thing, and I'm going to deposit it right here in Corinth, and we'll interact with them. We'll learn from them over the future. But nobody else is going to have that. Does anybody seriously think that's what happened? Or... Do you think that what we get a play-by-play of in Corinth about the commonness of spiritual gifts, the use of spiritual gifts, the importance of spiritual gifts, the function of spiritual gifts in gatherings was normal in all of Paul's churches? I think so. Because the economy that he explains about the operation of the Holy Spirit is not unique to Corinth. It is the common life of the believer in the setting with others. So disciple-making is a charismatic event. It is a spirit, gift-given activity for the church to participate in one another. Right. So in our disciple-making, in your personal disciple-making, what role is the gifts of the Holy Spirit playing in that? your church making disciples? Well, you know, what kind of gifts are being manifest in the church to do that? Right, disciple making required church discipline, right? Church was not just a place where all you did was show up and get told over and over again, you're great and you can be greater. You should feel good about you and your future is even better. Uh, You know, that wasn't the message every week was this motivational speaker, one thing after another. There were points, as diverse as Corinth was, we just saw this is, a, this is a church that, I mean, I don't know, maybe the line went out the door for church discipline in Corinth, which is an interesting thing because there's a lot of issues taking place here that don't fall under church discipline. A lot of us would like to church discipline everybody, right, for everything. You got until tomorrow, buddy. You fix that by tomorrow. We're going to call a meeting, church discipline for you. Well, not in Corinth, but yes in Corinth. There were situations that existed that the appropriate response for the church that was making disciples was to put someone out of the church. That was the right thing to do. It's an appropriate view of holiness there. Disciple making addressed practical daily living. 
Paul spoke on marriage. He spoke on conflicts, gender roles. Disciple-making touched people's money. Right, you get to the end of, Act, uh, of 1 Corinthians chapter 16, and Paul's giving instruction to how they were, as God prospered them, to set money aside. Right? If you're, are, you, are you making disciples? Well, I don't know. Are you setting money aside for the purpose of making disciples? To be honest, I want to broaden our thinking here. Can we create a few more categories and not just think, well, I'm making disciples because I share the gospel with people at work. Yes, you are. I've led people to Christ. Yes, you are. You should. I don't give, though. Well, then no, you're not. Because Paul thought that was a means. Matter of fact, global partnership gets mentioned. Paul says, hey, guys, this is a few years later. I'm going to be passing through. I might even spend the winter with you. Uh, When I come through, I need you to help me on my mission. I need you to partner with me as I take the gospel elsewhere. I need you to fund the gospel going into other places. So when I come to you guys, I'm going I'm to need some help from you. As a matter of fact, Timothy's coming to you guys. Make sure you take care of him. Right? So there's a gospel partnership. Do you partner? You know, a few weeks ago, we, we had Mark Prater here. We, you know, opportunities within Sovereign Grace. That's, that's global for us to participate in. Do you, do you participate in making disciples on the other side of the world that the first time you'll ever shake their hand will be in heaven? That's disciple making. So we need a little bigger view of disciple-making. Last thing, church life, here's reality. Church life is a mixture of success and struggle, correct practice and errant approaches, doctrinal strength and doctrinal neglect. That's what a disciple-making church is going to look and feel like. Let me pick up my other term here just for a minute. Lessons on determinism. We just visited Corinth two to three years after Paul had been there for a year and a half. He established this church. He's he's preached in Corinth, saw the first converts in Corinth, laid the foundations for this church, taught them doctrinally, taught by his life, etc. And then we show up after Paul is gone, not too long after he's gone, and we take a snapshot of the church in Corinth. And the fruit is quite faulty. This is, this is a church with problems. You show up in Corinth, you have no idea where this church, how it got started. What are you thinking? Right? Determinism wants to blame somebody. Who's to blame for this? Who, where did, how did you guys get started? Good night. You look like you got off to the wrong foot in a lot of categories here. Who was the first pastor of this place? Uh, Apostle Paul. Now you're on your heels, aren't you? Well, I mean, just let's do to the Apostle Paul what we would do to others. You show up in a church, church has got problems. It's got issues. Well, today, this is what you'd say to today. You'd say, well, you know, I guess the Apostle Paul just wasn't gospel-centered enough. That's the term today. If he, if he had preached the gospel more effectively and clearly, well, then certainly we would think that Corinth would be in a different position. Heck, for that matter, the Galatians, good night. They abandoned justification by faith. At least they were trying to. I, I, you know, Paul. Well, who started that church? That, they sure got into a mess. If 
Paul had certainly preached the gospel more adequately there. Not the case, right? I'm pretty sure Paul did a pretty good job with the gospel in Corinth, in Galatia. Right? A few years ago, we'd have said, well, you know, if Paul had just done a better job of, of, of teaching people on their identity in Christ, these things would be fixed. You wouldn't, you know, the fault's got to lie there. And you back up a few years before that, if, if, if Paul had been full gospel, if Paul were Pentecostal, then certainly these things would be different. If Paul were reformed in his theology, right? I mean, don't we do this? We examine fruit and we pull on the trail to find what do we blame here? But the, the problem is, I don't think Paul had a problem in any of these areas. Well, if Paul had just been a little better example, I'm not sure what kind of leadership he has. As a matter of fact, I read through 1 Corinthians, I don't even hear much about leadership. Did Paul forget to raise up leaders in 1 Corinthians? I think Paul did all those things, and yet there was still faulty fruit. Who do we blame? How? How do, how do we figure this out? Because if you do the right thing, don't you get the right outcome? Isn't that how it works? Well, I don't know. Let's go, let's go ask God that. God puts Adam and Eve in a garden where there's no sin. The, the, the deck is stacked in their favor. Eat everything. Eat everything except this. Don't, just don't do this one right here. Did God do the right thing? Did God prepare Adam and Eve adequately? Maybe he needed a little bit more meetings with them. You know, he was, maybe he's a bad parent. Do you understand Adam and Eve? I don't you know, you know, put this into teenage land and young adult land. Adam and Eve rejected their father's religion. You get that? You said, trust you and do it this way. We say, we're doing this. Well, given the faulty fruit, I, I, gee, I don't know, determinism, I guess God must have done something wrong. He didn't do anything wrong, did he? So listen, there are marriages here. You started off marriage. You're a couple, you, you love God, you took steps in your marriage. Firm foundation. You studied, read books, went to conferences, etc. Somewhere along the line, you got down to a point and someone took a snapshot of you, held it up, and the fruit was plenty faulty. What? What happened? Some of you hear that, that faultiness ended up in divorce and you've, you've been through a divorce in your life. And... and in the silence of your own heart, if nowhere else, you have wrestled through the question, what could I have done differently? What did I not do right? What did I not do enough of? Now listen, I'm not trying to let anybody off the hook of responsibility here, but I, I want to I I stomp on determinism and not destroy responsibility. Can you let me do both of those today? I'm kind of mentally bipolar. I can think in both times. I know everybody can't, so I'm not making fun of that. It's just I have no problem with I am responsible, but I am not determinative. Parents, 
there are parents here who you, you had children, you read the Bible, you lived your life for God, you managed multiple activities in life, you loved your kids, you loved the church, you loved your job, you did, you did things with your life as best you knew how to do them. And fast forward into the years of your children turning teenagers or young adults and take a snapshot and hold it up and there's faulty fruit in that moment. And if you have determinism in you right now, you are being tortured by it. Because you were convinced that if you just did the right things, you would get the right outcome. How? How did this happen? How did my children go wayward? How, how did their lives become what they are? If, if, if I had just been a better parent, if I had just done more, if I had prayed more, shared the Bible with them more, stayed home more, been more available to them, then, then they would be, listen, I'm responsible for me, but I am not determinative. And you are not determinative. I don't think, I don't pick up anywhere the Apostle Paul doing that to himself. Writing back to the Corinthians with this laundry list of issues, scratching his head going, where did I go wrong? What, what, did, I, what did I do? What did I not do? What did I not say? What should I have done? What did I not think through correctly? Oh, this, this is all because of me. You can be a pastor in a church leader of a small group. You are called to be responsible, but you are not determinative. You do not have that kind of control and power. And listen, you know, part of me loves the idea that I do. And then part of me says, you're an idiot for wanting it. Part of me loves the idea, and I have, I have loved the idea that I could rescue my children's future by doing the right thing for them along the way. If I just did the right thing, then they would be rescued from this future. But when I really examine that, we're right back where we started. I don't always do the right thing. You sure you want to have that kind of control? Yeah, put it on me, God. Put it on me. I'm the man of the house. I'm going to lead these kids and care for these guys be wisdom to them and give input into their lives and live sacrificially in every category known to man. Boy, that sounds great on paper. What about the days that I took off? Well, not my A game there. What about the days that my head was stuck in my belly button? I was too busy worrying about something about me. I, didn't have, I don't know how to parent you in this moment. I'm trying, just trying to figure out how to be Keith right now, okay? What about those moments? Well, they still exist. Paul, don't be afraid, Paul. What about the moments where Keith's afraid? What about the moments where you're afraid? Where you're, you're being weird. You've landed in weirdo land in your responsibilities towards others. And that's where you are right now. All right, that's real. Right? That really, really has happened. So with that, I, at that point, I don't want that kind of control. It sounded good at first. Sounded like if I just do the right thing, then they'll get to be the right person. That sounds like a good deal. I think I want to go for that. 
Paul didn't get to sign that deal. If I'm just the right apostle, if I just lay the right foundations, I just teach the gospel correctly, if I just model things effectively to them, if I just do this and this and this, then they will be a church that's got nothing like the headlines that we just read. And it doesn't turn out that way. And Paul doesn't sound shocked, does he? When you read 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, he doesn't fall off his apostolic stool. But some of us as pastors or parents or husbands and wives, we get into this questionable fruit zone and we just fall off. It's like, oh, I, was, I wasn't ready for this day. I thought if we did and I did and we read this book and we acted this way and went to this church and we sought this counsel, then, then we wouldn't have these moments. Well, then you wouldn't have 1 Corinthians either. And you do. So I want to take a moment here. I think I've got a moment, don't I? Yeah, I do. Eric, go ahead and come back up here. Take a moment just for the Lord to help us receive from him in this message. Let's stand up together. Lord, your word is sharp like a two-edged sword. It pierces into our lives. Lord, that's, that's what we want it to do, and that's what you've designed it to do. So, Lord, we, we don't want to be rescued from your word. We want your word to deliver us. We want it to rescue us. And so, Lord, this morning, perhaps we are in need of what this word exposes to us. I should take a moment just to let the Lord ask you about your disciple-making. Are you a disciple-maker? This church was making disciples. This church was living life together with lots and lots of faults and weaknesses, but they were making disciples. They were having an impact. Paul was not embarrassed to partner with them. He said he was coming back to them. He was sending Timothy to them to be cared for by them. This church was making disciples. They were having a global impact for the glory of God. We need to learn from what we can learn from, from the Corinthians, and answer the question, am I making disciples? Does that language find itself in my world? Or am I, no, I'm just a college student. No, I'm I'm just a in a career. No, I'm just a mom. No, I'm just a whatever. Well, in all those places, you're not an apostle, but you are a disciple maker. Or would you help us to rescue our lives from having misplaced the great commission, the great calling that sits upon every Christian to learn of you, 
to be taught all that you commanded. And then, Lord, to be imparters of that to others, to sit with others, to open the word together, to pray for folks, to be a source of strength to believers and an opportunity for conversion for lost people. Lord, awaken us as disciples of yours to make disciples. take a moment and, and pray for folks that are living in what I would call the deadly broth of determinism. I think there may be more than one category. I, I just felt most drawn to pray for parents here. And I don't just mean parents who are still raising children. I think more than that, I mean parents who are done raising children. Well, maybe you're never done. (laughs) But your children are adults. They're living life now. They're living the life that you had input to in the early years. that you now question. And you wonder what you could have done differently. Perhaps you are captured by a deep sense of regret. I believe for many the Lord would say he wants to help you with some perspective. When you gaze upon the Corinthian church, there are lots of issues. Some of them were bad issues. Many of them were outstanding issues. There are many parents here. When you gaze back, you remember what you didn't do, but you seem to be forgetting what you did do gotten the many prayers that you prayed and the eagerness to find a way to speak into your child's life. Moments in which they didn't want you to speak into their life. Moments in which it was never easy to lead them and connect with them. Not because you weren't trying, but because they didn't want you to. Moments in which you sought to compel them to trust and believe God. Yes, at moments when that didn't work and you were frustrated and you became angry, yes. Moments in which you lived your life before your children as an example. They saw you as a a loving parent often. They saw you love God. They saw you love his church. You led them to do the same. God calls parents here to be responsible for themselves and not to take responsibility for everything else. 
and for others. Your children, like Adam and Eve, need to make decisions. And you can't determine that. You can just decide who you're going to be. And your best efforts, like the Apostle Paul's, will fall short. They will have weaknesses with you and weakness, trembling and fear. Lord, I pray for grace for parents here. Lord, I'm not trying to uproot responsibility. I hope no parent here is hearing a charge toward the land of irresponsibility. Lord, I, I pray this morning, Lord, for parents who have tried to be over-responsible for too many things, that you would bring grace into their life. You would rescue them from the deadly broth of determinism that they think that present conditions are the direct result of their failures. But would you help them to see there's a lot more at work here than just who they were. They were not determinative. Lord, I pray this gives grace to parents to be more responsible, more responsible with me. Lord, give me the freedom to be me. Lord, help me not to look into the lives of deficiency of the future and to have that paralyze who I am today. That something didn't happen in a child's life and therefore I'm changed. Lord, that happens for church members. Something didn't happen, therefore I just back away, I stop. Lord, I pray for grace for families. Lord, as we walk together, as we hear encouragement, as we receive teaching and input on being responsible with this call that we have, Lord, we won't turn that into a power to be determinative. It's beyond us, Lord. So Lord, would you help this passage to help us to see our need see what you did through a man named the Apostle Paul and years into the future like all the work of the Apostles there would be flaws there would be faulty fruit there will be a line of Paul's ministries in Revelation chapter 2 receiving one word of correction after another some 25 years later Lord make us responsible but rescue us from being determinative Amen. Amen. Bless you guys. Y'all have an awesome, wonderful week.